Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. My name is Michael Maybach. I'm a trustee of the Institute of World Politics and one of their alumni. We welcome you this afternoon to this session entitled Countering Islamic Extremism by Orchestrating the Instruments of National Power. We have two IWP professors, excellent um, experts on our topic. I'm gonna to introduce them um, first, Professor Strand, and then uh, after he speaks, Chris Harmon. So um, in, as way of introduction of our topic today, it's fair to say, despite suffering repeating setbacks in recent years, Islamic extremism, or more specifically totalitarian Islamism and the terrorism it spawns around the world remains a major threat to the United States and our allies. While there will always be a need for the selective use of military power, hard power as we call it sometimes, to counter this threat, effectively addressing it requires non-military tools of statescraft. And statecraft, of course, is what we specialize at IWP. This webinar for the next hour will discuss how the United States and our international partners can better use those tools, those soft power tools, to win the fight against terrorism without over-reliance on combat operations. Our first presenter is a professor of international relations at the U.S. Marine Corps Command and Staff College and adjunct professor at the Institute of World Politics, Professor Douglas E. Strustan has studied politics and warfare primarily in the Islamic world for more than 40 years. He has written two books on Islamic empire, empires of the early modern period and edited a, edited a third on the Reagan administration's grand strategy, as well as articles and chapters in a wide variety of topics. So Doug, if may I call you that? Um, would you start out by telling us what is this Islamism in terms of a challenge to the West? How would you define it? Well, thank you, Michael. The way that I define the ideology of the enemy is totalitarian Islamism. The way that I describe the enemy with which we're engaged is the totalitarian Islamist network or network of networks. Um, Within this network are a number of, no, of nodes, many of them we're familiar with. The Islamic Republic of Iran and its uh, proxy Hezbollah, the Al-Qaeda networks, the networks associated with the so-called Islamic State. And these nodes cooperate and compete um, as the, for example, they fight each other as the Taliban and the um, affiliate of the Islamic State uh, in Afghanistan, recently uh, between Al-Qaeda and so-called Islamic State affiliates in Burkina Faso, but they also cooperate. Um, with military force and other forms of powered power, we can disrupt, degrade, uh, weaken, occasionally perhaps even destroy some of these nodes. But 
The problem is that as long as they can continually regenerate through recruitment, the struggle will go on. And only the kinds of non-military power, soft power, that Dr. Harmon is going to talk about can actually lead to an end or at least a marginalization of the struggle. So to, to go on to discuss totalitarian Islamism as an ideology, and I do, and I, and I emphasize the word ideology. Um, when the West first encountered this threat in the Iranian revolution in 1979, and then after the 9-11 attacks, we, the West in general, classified it as a threat from another civilization or from a religion and put it in a different category from the struggles against totalitarian ideologies in the West that occupied us for most of the 20th century and that we succeeded in winning. What we are confronting is not, certainly not traditional Islam or even a form of Islamic thought that developed within the Islamic tradition but a hybrid ideology that developed in the in dialogue with Western radical traditions and is an inherently modern revolutionary ideology that conceptually and functionally resembles Marxism-Leninism. It is not a form of religious conservatism. And we need to draw on the same um, array of instruments of national power as we did successfully in winning the Cold War to defeat it. On that, can I just ask, you know, um, more than one person has said that Islam is a religion that's been hijacked. Is that fair to say, or is that just a, a bad way to think about? Well, I, I think hijacking uh, is an accurate term as long as we realize that only a small percentage of Muslims, although quite a large number in absolute terms, have actually been affected by or been carried off, shall we say, by the hijacking. Um, the, uh, this, the ideology that we are up against uh, developed in starting in the 1930s with the encounter between Muslim intellectuals and the um, ideologies of radical dissent that spread from Europe through uh, the European empires, 
And um, so you're talking about Marx and Lenin. Yes, very much so. And what, um, what appealed what appealed to them about that? Just that they that they were revolutionary ideas against the power structure, or they well that they were the that was I guess the 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 dominant discourse of resistance to the uh, the to the Western powers, and were you know pervasive among the intellectuals of the European colonies. Um, in particular, totalitarian idea, Islamism relies on the concept of revolutionary vanguard, which the totalitarian Islamist intellectuals, beginning with the South Asian Abu Allah Maududi, borrowed directly and explicitly from Lenin. Uh, so it is very clear from the beginning that this ideology is not something that came out of reading the Quran and the Hadith alone. In fact, the reading of the Quran and Hadith reflects the revolutionary background, the Western education of most totalitarian Islamists on the Sunni side who reject the authority of the traditional ulama uh, entirely. So Doug, there's a, there's a school of thought that, gee, we wouldn't have radical Islamic uh, revolution, revolutionary thoughts, if it wasn't for the West intervention in that region, colonization, uh, installing the Shah in Iran. So is this sort of a reaction against imperialism or a form of nationalism, or is it different than that? Well, it includes both of those things, provided the nationalism that you talk about is a nationalism that uh, purports to speak for the entire Muslim community, the Ummah. Yeah. Um, but the, unfortunately, uh, we do not have the opportunity of going back 100 years or 200 years and changing history. Um, uh, I mean, there, there is the, the great, great observation of Samuel Butler that God tolerates the existence of historians because they can change history and he can't. But <laughs> nonetheless, um, uh, the, uh, we don't have that option. And although um, totalitarian Islamism would never have gotten a grip on many Muslims if there were not concrete grievances, just like um, Marxism would never have gained traction in the West if there weren't um, exploited industrial workers or hadn't been. And Nazism would never have gained power in Germany if there weren't grievances over the World War I settlement. But in none of these cases would merely satisfying grievances, even if it were possible. Yeah. Um, and the commitment to the ideology. Um, one could not have, have, have bought off Hitler with a territorial settlement. He would eventually have gone to war. Yeah. So once the grievances lead people to the ideology or the ideology 
appeals to them more because of their personal circumstances uh, or personal uh, characteristics, uh, dealing with the concrete grievances can't solve the problem. So it becomes almost cultural in, from the word cult, which is a way of behaving as a way of life. And so what you're saying is their ideology has become so much part of at least the culture of some in the Muslim religion that there is no give, there is no moderation or compromise because this is jihad for them in a political sense. Well, one has to remember that some individuals do change their minds, just as uh, many of the most determined anti-communists were former communists. But um, the term cult is useful because even though this is an ideology, it is the interpretation of a religion as a totalitarian ideology, yeah, as opposed yeah. to the religion itself. It has the characteristics, the psychological characteristics of a cult. Um, and that makes it that which which makes it very difficult to counter once individuals are committed to it. And again, raise, raises the importance of dealing with recruitment through non-military instruments. Right. Um, and this may get into where Chris is going to be addressing, but we just had the UAE after I think it's been 29 years since Jordan recognized diplomatically Israel. Does that have anything to do with, with this? Is that seen by radical Muslims as a major problem that UAE has now done this? Or is I this would say that um, the totalitarian Islamists would say that it justified killing every citizen of the United Arab Emirates. Emirates. Wow. That it that it, it constitutes effectively apostasy. My God. I've never actually seen a statement like that. Yeah. But that's what the ideology would um, uh, would recommend, and, and you know, the the leadership of the United Arab Emirates is determined to make it a cosmopolitan and effective player on the world stage, unbound by its, its cultural background. And I think they, they, they would agree that they might like to uh, play a, a role in the world comparable to that of, for example, our valuable ally, Norway. Well, just go to Abu Dhabi and you'll, you'll get a sense they really want to be a cosmopolitan country uh, right down the road from camels. Uh, it's really quite stunning. Well, I don't think I don't think they want to leave the camels behind. They just don't want to, they, they just don't want to have to live with them. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but um, uh, but the, 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 the point is that it is as valid to think about the United Arab Emirates, which has just uh, started its, its, its first nuclear plant and sent a probe to Mars, as well as recognizing Israel, Israel all within the last four to six weeks, is as valid a symbol of what's going on in the Islamic world as the 
barbarous murderers of the so-called Islamic State and is more representative of the mindset of the vast majority of Muslims. Yeah, right. I think that's right. Can I ask you, um, we've heard especially a few years ago this, this idea of the restoration of the caliphate uh, until Abu Baghi was um, killed by the United States. And I think that, and of course they lost so much territory under, under President Trump that they had gained under the last administration. Is, is that the right way to think about this, that the ra radical Islamists are interested in a new caliphate, or is that just the wrong word? Well, a radical Islamicist would be a radical student of Islam. Uh, but but to, to, to the only form of government that exists within the framework of Sunni Islamic law is a caliphate. Therefore, whatever government they advocate, they have to call a caliphate. But the, uh, the, the, the restoration that they talk about is not actually a return to a historical past, but uh, a vision of a utopian in theory, therefore dystopian in practice, future projected back on the past. Okay. Uh, so that, that you know, what many people have talked have said, well, they want to restore the caliphate, they want to go back to the 13th century. No, they don't want to go back to the 13th century. They want to create what they define as a perfect Islamic society in the 14th Islamic century. In Islamic century, but it has not. But it's it is not a remembered past. It is a utopia vision of the future projected into the past. Right. So they they remembered the future by imagining the past. But they they project their imagination of the future yeah. onto the past. Yes. But but their um, but but a a totalitarian Islamist caliphate would look much more like the Soviet Union under Stalin than like anything in the past history of Muslim societies. Okay, well, Doug, thank you very much. I want to introduce Chris Harmon now. Uh, Chris, so Doug has tried to give us in, in a short period of time a sense of, of uh, what is really going on when we talk about radical Islamic behavior and networks of networks around the world. Chris C, Christopher C. Harmon began teaching terrorism and counterterrorism courses at IWP just after 9-11, which is when I met him. Uh, he wrote his political science dissertation in the field, in that field in the early 1980s, is lectured worldwide, and is the lead author or editor of five books on terrorism. The latest is a 2018 book from the prestigious press of the Brookings Institution called The Terrorist Argument, Modern Advocacy and Propaganda. Dr. Harmon holds the Bren Chair 
of great power competition at the Marine Corps University and its foundation. So both of these gentlemen teach both at IWP and they teach warriors at different institutions uh, as well. And so we welcome Chris. Um, Chris, you're gonna talk, I think, about some of the antidotes or the how to address without military power, some of the problems presented by the radical uh, revolution of Islam these days. Thank you, Mike. I do want to take the conversation in that direction now based on the good uh, foundations uh, about ideology that you discussed with Doug. I want to talk a little about the, the sort of way we might uh, orchestrate better our elements of soft power. And then uh, specifically, I want to focus on who should be speaking while we're trying to do this uh, public information and, and then what should they say. And, and the latter I've found to be one of the most intriguing questions. I think we Americans haven't figured it out, even though we've been thinking about this for two decades, about what to say to the world about this ideology that Dr. Strusen's described. So uh, back to the question about the, the elements of national power, of course, a strength of the way IWP approaches things. And Dr. Lenchowski has a, has a book on how, how one might do this. With respect to Islamism, which is, of course, a peculiar uh, current enemy, um, I think I want to make a couple of quick observations. One is um, we shouldn't be obsessed with synchronizing our messages. We should be content in a pluralistic society with pluralistic rejoinders uh, to the ideological offensive that we face. I, synchronizing I, with the enemy or with each other? Uh, we should not worry about uh, entirely synchronizing our own rejoinders to the enemy, Mike. Uh, I've been to many a conference where, you know, they say the first thing is to get everybody on the same page as though we're singing in a chorus. No, no, that's not right. That isn't how democracies really work. That's not what we really feel about this. And it would discount the wonderful diversity in America and in the, the prospects for everything from, let's say, a businessman's council, uh, a, a, a lion's club, uh, a, a rabbi or, a, or an imam, uh, a clerical council of specialists in Islam, there are so many different kinds of voices and they don't have to be all synchronized. Secondly, I think we can do much better by uh, being better on the defense, but also starting an offense. In other words, I, I think we've been playing a kind of weak defense for 20 years on this ideological issue. So the major elements then of power, besides our wonderful special forces and, uh, for example, the economic sanctions, which have been really skillfully used by successive administrations against Iran, I think, uh, the elements of power include things like diplomacy, public diplomacy, intelligence, psychological operations. Uh, we have in our diplomatic quiver, uh, of course, offices at State Department which deal with the issue. And I, I like the work that Ambassador Nathan Sales is doing. Uh, he came into state from, from DHS and Justice and, and he, he's, he's quite good. We are party to useful international colloquia. So we co-founded with Turkey. Uh, it's nice to know that at least a few years ago, we could work with them closely. We co-founded with Turkey the, uh, the council that we call the, the, the uh, Global Counterterrorism Forum, 
which has done some really good work, especially uh, something called the Ankara Memorandum from 2013 that I hope we have uh, time to discuss. Is that still uh, active then, even though Turkey yeah. has changed yeah. its leadership? Yeah, it sure is. Um, they, they do things all the time. And there are about 30 parties, including the European Union. Um, the State Department also puts out a very good report. So the one on 19 is now out, and that is called the uh, Country Reports on Terrorism. It's a, it's a detailed and useful. In public diplomacy, uh, we then use uh, some of those implements, uh, and we have offices within state that include, for example, a fairly youngish crew that work on cyber issues. So uh, radicalization is done on the web. We're pushing back on the web. We have people that are tech savvy and sort of alert to all the different social media operations. Uh, that could be far bigger an office and far more expansive an agenda, but we at least have that. In intelligence and psychological operations, these are things we wouldn't necessarily see as citizens, but they can do good things like damaging directly uh, a violent extremist organization like Al-Qaeda, uh, whose leader we still can't find after all these years. Uh, and they have options to do things like, well, there's something publicized recently called Task Force Ares, A-R-E-S, and uh, citizens can read about it on the web. But a military task force went right after some of the servers and web services uh, of the worst of the Islamist terrorists, and they took a lot of them down, and it was very effective. So uh, what we need, Mike, is a series of new initiatives by these kinds of offices. I, I don't think they're gonna cost a lot of money. I think they need stronger leadership and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about who some of those good leaders might be. So Chris, what might be a model? Is the Cold War model that the US orchestrated? I mean, we didn't go to war with the Soviet Union but we certainly did everything but. Is that a model or is that just too, um, to uh, binary, if you will. I kind of like the, the Cold War model and, and, and good, good people like uh, Dr. Strusen have, have done books and book chapters suggesting it's a worthy model. Uh, the Isaac uh, Press uh, in, in McLean, Virginia has released a couple volumes that, that sometimes cover it from that angle. We recognized there was a threat. We knew that it was far more than military. And we recognize the psychological and political dimensions. And uh, people like Ronald Reagan just intuitively grasped that. And he, of course, was especially good because he was so positive. Uh, this is not going to be won by only criticizing the worst excesses of yeah. the Islamists. It's got to be won by including things like a proper understanding of, of a civil society. Uh, and of rule of law. And it's got to be understood that this is, uh, we can make a better world for everyone. And that includes the Muslims who are the first. I don't mind saying that. I've said it for years. Muslims are the first to be damaged by most of these Islamist organizations. So when you ask the question, raise the question, who are the best speakers? Uh, in the United States, should that be members of Congress, the president, uh, academia, 
all of the above? What? Ooh, I really agree with that, Mike. I, I really looking for a kind of whole of community approach, as they say, or whole of society. Um, there are so many operations that, that are that are uh, promising. I've met in my own time a number of expert women, for example, who deal directly with with women's groups. So, uh, you know, one of my more interesting conferences was in the Maldives. And I met a Ruby Khalifa, who's an expert academic there from Indonesia. Uh, and she can so well address, as a Muslim, uh, Muslim women on this issue. She's attuned in ways I never would be to how Southeast Asia's youth, which are a very ripe recruiting ground, uh, will look to the world and to a recruiter for ISIS or Al Qaeda. Uh, uh, to take another example, there's quite a lot of think tanks and government entities that are working on this now that, that have uh, very good things to teach, including Singapore's Religious Rehabilitation Group, which has published a series of fine reports, uh, Hadaya in a center in Abu Dhabi. Uh, there are quite a few. I'm a fan, although this is contentious, and, and I don't know if, if Doug has a comment. I'm a fan of the Quilliam Foundation in London. Uh, these guys are mostly defectors from Islamist but non-terrorist groups like Hizbut Tahrir. They believe in the caliphate, or did, and they believe in kind of the, the, the covert work that Doug was alluding to and the fierce ideology, but they allege that they were anti-terrorist. Well, they left uh, those groups and they now work against extremism. So they're quite contentious, but, uh, you know, uh, Majid Noaz has done a, a couple of books. Uh, they give very fine speeches. And unlike, let's say, me or you, they can speak from inside an organization. Uh, and they're, they're very good. And, and I would add quickly, and then I'll, I'll ask Doug to comment, uh, on this notion of Islamists who, who aren't over terrorists at all, that is set aside, you know, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, um, people like the Muslim Brotherhood, they're really well dealt with by two books by Lorenzo Vedino, and his latest is out this year from Colombia. Uh, the Closed Circle is based upon uh, defectors, and each chapter covers a person who's been inside and who's seen the inside. Those people can be very effective. And then in our own government, I have a, a few names that I, I think do exceptionally well on the American scene. Uh, but I'd like uh, Doug to talk about this question of 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 who should be uh, who should be speaking because I insist that it's not just one person from the Department of State. Doug, do you have some uh, comments? I, I I agree, Chris, that it can't but just be one person or one organization. I also agree with you about the Cooling Foundation. Um, the the question is in part, yeah, who should be saying what and how much should the United States actually be involved? We do not want mainstream Islam to, uh, to get a, a made in America stamp on it. Um, we want to facilitate um, mainstream spokesmen, anti-totalitarian uh, spokesmen, spokeswomen, um, but the things that we say in our own voice 
need to recognize our limitations. We cannot judge, we lack the standing to judge whether someone is a Muslim or not, or is a good Muslim or not. But the primary thing is that, or primary point, is that the totalitarians want to define the global struggle as between Islam and the West and identify themselves as the true defenders of Islam. We need to define the struggle differently. Their definition seeks to broaden the community of enemy of, of enemies of the West, their recruiting pool, as far as possible. We should seek to narrow the struggle and narrow their and, and, and decrease their recruiting pool. Yeah, I let me break in there and say that I think the, the decisive point is when Americans speak, uh, they are in very good position. They don't need any special standing uh, to address this issue of ideology when it causes terrorism. So let, let me give an example that, that I think almost proves this beyond doubt, that whatever we may think about the issue, when it comes to terrorism, even the United Nations has now managed a definition, it's a good one too, in its treaty on terrorist financing. In a long series of, of, of council resolutions, um, in, uh, there is good, solid, broad denunciation of terrorism. Moreover, uh, groups uh, signed on to things like 2178 some years back, which very carefully and explicitly condemn under Chapter 7 now, which entails the potential use of force under the UN, uh, things like radicalization, uh, recruitment, uh, violent extremism, incitement to terrorist acts, uh, the web when it's used in those ways. Now, here's my point. It isn't just about us or how we feel, and it isn't, and we don't need to be defensive when we're abroad in an international conference. Countries have all signed this kind of legislation. They all publish these kind of denunciations. So when we get to the issue of terrorism from extremists, uh, we've got almost a global consensus. I wouldn't mind saying, and you guys remember, in the 1970s, when we were all thinking about this, we had no such consensus. This required the building of it by great people like, say, George Schultz at State and a thousand others, uh, Gene Kirkpatrick. We have it now. We've got our view well expressed at the UN. And so when an American diplomat or academic or anybody wants to address these things, there are certain elements of unanimity now when the ideology has produced terrorism. So, you know, would I uh, join, uh, would I join a series of, of three men and women who defected from Izbud Uturir? No, I would be a rather awkward fit. Uh, but if the conference they're holding is on terrorism, as an American, I might have something to say, uh, even though I've never been a Muslim. Okay, I've got a, three or four questions. And I want to walk through them fairly quickly with both of you. So, I think we are making an assumption here, but I want to test this, that Islam itself is a religion of peace. And the 
And what's happened is in the name of Islam, there's been a radical ideology that it's sort of stood on top of, but that the, the Islam religion itself, because it, people say the Quran says all kinds of things. Is it fair to say Islam is a religion of peace and that this has been abused by these uh, revolutionaries? Is I, I would not say that any religion is a religion of peace. Religions are in the phenomenal world, in the real world, what their believers make it. Islam can be a religion of peace, and I think that I think the vast majority of Muslims would interpret it that way. But I don't like the idea of saying that um, uh, <clears throat> that Islam has a single unchanging essence, uh, whether based on text or not. Certainly, um, the, you know, the, the, the Christian scriptures can have, have a strong pacifist message. Those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. But that has not present, prevented Christians from wielding the sword in the name of Christianity. So I, 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 would, I would say Islam is what Muslims make it. And unfortunately, the argument that, is, that real Islam is a religion of peace has led some well-meaning individuals, including individuals within the U.S. government, to accept some groups and doctrines as benign just because they call themselves Islamic. Okay. And let's, let's have Chris. So Chris, are you in harmony with what Doug just said about Islam? You're on mute, Chris. Chris, you're on mute. Yeah, you both should be on mute. I, 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 uh, I, I think he spoke well. Uh, I wouldn't make that kind of, of generalization either. Uh, I, I think that the key is a lot of Muslims recognize and reject the terrorists within. So, you know, there are, there are no end of good documents, and I try to keep up with them, um, uh, letters from collections of imams. Uh, the Mardan Declaration made in Turkey in 2010 I have many of these things in which very good Muslims, very learned ones, have thoroughly and completely repudiated terrorism and said this is no excuse for talking in Islamic terms. Yeah. You know, one of the prime ministers of Malaysia five years ago made a magnificent speech in which he said, you know, don't blame these terrorists on, on my faith. So they understand, and I think we do well in our government if we would amplify those voices a lot more than we do. It doesn't require us to be a Muslim, uh, but it makes it clear how out of the mainstream the terrorists are. Now, so, if I may add to that, uh -huh. um, unfortunately, the, the mainstream American media have done far better at asking why Muslims are not condemning terrorism than at reporting when they do. But at the same time, it is very important for us not to put these condemnations, uh, uh, this Muslim condemnations of, ter of terrorism, in particular, 
the categorical denial that it meets the definition of, of jihad as warfare, the legal definition. Yeah. Uh, in, 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 un, with an American binding, shall we say. Um, this, is, this is one of the, the, the very important uh, validities of Dr. Harmon's argument for a multitude of voices. Let me add one more question. Uh, gentlemen, that, that is often obscured, and, and it's strange. Uh, I began noticing that even our best so-called terrorism experts, and of course now we have hundreds, all say one thing, and that is that it's such a nasty word, the guys who do terrorism would sure never apply it to themselves. That could not be more wrong. Whether it's in a communist like Carlos Maragela writing his famous mini-manual in 1969, or the author of the so-called Call to Global Islamic Resistance in 0405, a very famous man, a Syrian, uh, they often say they know what terrorism is and they know why they're using it. And they specifically describe its purposes. Now, I made a lot of studies as well of uh, Muslim uh, warriors uh, who held a nationalist banner, not an Islamist, uh, in Algeria in the 50s. And again, uh, several of those people were famous for quotations, which suggested they know exactly how terrorism works, and they're very glad to be practicing it. They, they can understand the difference between that and, say, guerrilla war against French forces in Algeria. Short of it is, many terrorists have used the word to describe themselves, their own activities. Read Inspire magazine by Al-Qaeda. Read Dabiq by ISIS. They'll tell you what terrorism is. So half of our academics are still worrying about why there's 100 plus definitions. But the terrorists, I think, understand quite well what they're doing. And they know they're not mainstream. And in fact, their tactics are designed to drive good Muslims into a polarized society in which they're more likely to join the bad guys. OK, I've got some questions coming in now, gentlemen. So I'm going to try to ask a couple of those. Um, from Tobias, um, whether there is a second Trump administration or a Biden administration, do either of you foresee an appetite to strengthen our non-kinetic counterterrorism tools and focus on countering totalitarian is Islamism? Or will great power competition vis-a-vis -vis China and military innovation drown out these efforts for the foreseeable future? Uh, Mike, I'll, I'll jump and then I'll, I'll be quiet and let Doug take over. Uh, Mr. Trump made a very fine speech in May of 17 when he was overseas, uh, and he said some of the, the right things, but it's not. It's not a, a main part of his administration. He has great power focus, and we understand that. And I know Biden had decades in public life, but has shown no particular interest in this important line of work. Doctor, do you agree with me? Um, based on the 20 years of failure that we've had, it's difficult to be optimistic about improvement. I would point out, however, that given the costs of the hard power necessary to prevent us being faced with the choice of war or the collapse of global order. 
we're talking about a, a, a budgetary rounding error. We're so, talking uh, about, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of millions, no more. Okay, but so you've, you've been mentioning here that we haven't succeeded, but what is success? Because th these are thousands of people that have been radicalized far away from our shores, although there's some here in this country, but what is success? Uh, we, we, I, I think most administrations have been trying to bomb, bomb ourselves into success. And, but what, what does success look like in the next five years? That we somehow will convert people? Um, I would say that ult the ultimate success and I don't, I'm not, say, not claiming that we would deliver this. The ultimate success is to make totalitarian Islamism a laughing stock the way not the novel Don Quixote made knighthood a laughing stock. Um, but the word that I would emphasize, what we're looking for is marginalization. Okay. Um, yeah, the, 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 I, I don't expect the threat to disappear. But I expect, I, 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 if we follow the kind of informational strategy that Dr. Harmon has outlined, along with the coordinated use of all other instruments of power, we can reduce the um, ability of the totalitarian Islamist network to recruit and to operate. And the less visibly they operate, the more difficulty they will have in recruiting. You know, as, as, uh, as the redoubtable Margaret Thatcher said, attention is the oxygen that terrorism breathes. You know, not her words exactly. Um, and marginalization is what success looks like. But, you know, the... the, the more broadly, the United States needs to develop the capability to deal with multiple serious threats at the same time. Um, we created, I contend, the current era of great power competition by neglecting the possibility of future great of future great power competition for. 25 plus years after the end of the Cold War for, for conducting the global war on terrorism, as it was originally called, as if there would be no great power threat. Right, the end of history and the last man, Francis Fukuyama. Um, unfortunately so, but I, wouldn't, I don't want to blame an individual for thinking. <laughs> no, I know Frank, he's a, it's, it was an interesting Hegelian treatment, but but uh, history doesn't end because human nature doesn't end and it doesn't improve. We have a question from one of our audience. Where do you see the fight against radical Islam uh, going in 2020 and beyond? And maybe the other side of that question is, where are they heading? Uh, we're gonna have an election here in November. We're gonna have a new administration. Um, will they business as usual? Will they have different tactics for different presidents if we have a different president? What do you gentlemen think? Uh, I'll say a word, I, uh, just because I want to. I, I want to hope the next administration uh, gives this uh, issue some prominence, despite what Doug and I have said that's pessimistic. 
there are people out there with proven government spirit, you know, spirit and, and experience. Uh, Ms. Farah Pandith, who was a emissary to Muslim countries for us up until about 14. Uh, Alberto Fernandez, who's been a top guy at state and in international broadcasting. Uh, Robert Riley, who used to run a VOA and is now at the Westminster Institute. These are the kind of Americans we've had that are expert at dealing with the, the issues in these things without getting into unnecessary quarrels, who can show leadership. People like this need to be uh, in the National Security Council or in a special task force, and they need to be given a lot of reign. Uh, Doug and I agree, they don't really need much money. We need emphasis and we need imagination. Imagination is free. We have a lot of money. We have huge bureaucracies. They're not very good. We have a big bureaucracy in public diplomacy. It's just not very good. We need imagination. We need new arguments. We need new energy. We need some young people. And whatever administration's elected, that's the kind of person I want to see charge into this job. Okay, I've got a few other questions before we close out here. Um, the uh, Chinese are notorious for oppressing the Uyghur minority to their West. And I believe those are all Muslims. Um, what impact, if any, does that have on this conversation? Are the Chinese putting fuel in the fire or is that just, just, just different than that? Well, the, 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 the Muslim states have been surprisingly reluctant to condemn China. Uh, as partially because some of them, certainly Iran, see China as a very, very valuable partner or ally in confronting the West. Um, in fact, the uncertainty about the continuing U.S. role in the Middle East has made a number of countries in that region look toward to China as a possible alternative. But my sense is that just as in a number of other areas, it will, it will grow increasingly difficult for the Chinese to escape the consequences of uh, their actions. Um, Chris, but, do you agree with that, Chris? Uh, Mike, what I would say is not to, to differ with Doug at all. Uh, I, I got some wonderful briefings years ago on the developing Uyghur situation, and it, it's sickening. And it's, it's, the why, it's why people like Doug will actually use the word like Stalin in a discussion of a foul ideology that comes after Stalin, like Islamism. What the state's doing is an example of Chinese totalitarianism. The Uyghurs are, are the victims. Uh, China's actions are based upon some slurs, uh, very little real information, and a lot of fear. And the fear is that over-the-border influence from Islamist organizations may stir some of these guys up. Uh, and the larger fear is that it's a discernible, uh, entity which they may not be able to control. And this is exactly why totalitarian states often break up such populations and literally send them as migrants to other parts of the territory to, to weaken uh, the demographics. 
So what's happening is despicable. What, what can we, we can do almost nothing about it, uh, but keep some profile on it. There are still probably narrow, I really underscore that, narrow ways as in, for example, money laundering, organized crimes linked to terrorism, particular Islamist uh, travelers in Asia. There are some narrow areas in which we can collaborate with Beijing and we should, we really should, uh, but they are narrow and compared to the horrors of what's going on in the Uyghur area, uh, they, they aren't a top priority of US policy. Okay, I wanna close with the, go ahead. I, I, I'd just like to underline that the term totalitarian applies to the PRC and also in my judgment to Putin's Russia. The totalitarian Islamism is not the only totalitarian threat that we face. Yeah, matter of fact, for most of world history, that's what we had until about 1776. Uh, most but I disagree with that actually, that totalitarianism is a distinctly modern phenomenon. It's uh, not, the same, not the same thing as absolute monarchy. I see, well, fair enough, I, I stand corrected. I think you're right. Um, what I was, I guess I was talking about was sort of no natural rights, no uh, representational government, but uh, totalitarianism is, is a whole degree worse than, than a monarchy. Uh, despots uh, and totalitarians both have been using the counterterrorism argument uh, to, to, to crack down on their own people. Yeah. Um, this has confounded some of our social science friends, and it, it really shouldn't. The misuse of a term like terrorism, uh, just because it's a nice thing to strike an enemy with, it shouldn't be that uh, distracting. Uh, the best uh, definition of terrorism I've heard uh, and it's one we can all rely on, and it, it carefully distinguishes the problem from, say, political dissidence, which is totally normal and admirable sometimes, and that is that, that terrorism is the deliberate and systematic murder, maiming, and menacing of the innocent uh, for a political purpose, yeah. uh, maiming and menacing uh, to inspire fear for a political purpose, and that comes out of a think tank in 79. It's probably very uh, about the best definition of terrorism, but it, it sure distinguishes it nicely from normal political dissidence. But, okay, um, so many questions, so little time. I think we only have about uh, three minutes left. Um, I wanted to ask um, finally about uh, Islam and self-government versus Sharia law. Are there I think maybe it's just Indonesia. Are there governments that are majority Muslim countries that have what we would consider a democratic republic, or is that problematic because of Sharia law? Uh, civilians like myself don't know the answer to that. Well, I would say it's problematic because the, because you know, representative government itself is a difficult and rare thing. Um, not necessarily because of because of the Sharia. There are very few governments in the Islamic world that claim to govern in accord with the Sharia. Um, that's that's that is comparatively unusual, and even historically, even a state like the Ottoman Empire um, had in fact a mixed legal system, not a purely Sharia-based legal system. Um, if you think even about some of the 
groups that, that contributed to the formation of the United States, such as the Puritans. They held views which were entirely inconsistent with representative government, with freedom of thought, with individual rights. Um, as I said, Islam is what Muslims make it. Um, they can make an Islam consistent with open and representative government. Some Muslim intellectuals actually argue that the correct interpretation of the Quran requires democracy and pluralism. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult argument to make, but the point is that they make it. And if people, if Muslims come to believe in the value of open and representative government, they will accept that interpretation. Thank you, Doug. Um, because the hour of uh, 6 p.m. East Coast time has arrived, I'm just gonna uh, follow up here before we close with some uh, summary comments. I think part of what we heard from Dr. Strusan is that uh, Islamicism, a radical in nature, is not a religion so much as an ideology using a religion that some of the totalitarian aspects come from earlier Western uh, rhetoric and political thought, for example, Marx. And that one of the things that could, could help uh, to marginalize them is derision um, of these activities as really uh, sort of uh, unhelpful to, to people's future, et cetera from uh, Dr. Harmon. Um, I think he wants to go on the offensive, but not with weapons of war so much as weapons of rhetoric and attitude and alliances. The Islamic world has a network of networks and we have to have a network of networks with the right rhetorical and uh, soft power tools and not all singing from the same hymn book, but, in, um, but all singing, if you will, uh, good songs. And more singing, more singing. More singing and, um, and and cheerfully. We want happy warriors like Reagan. And um, that the lessons in Cold War uh, were that for what, 40 some years, we had a lot of allies together that had one central idea and that is this cannot stand. And just like we don't want radical Islamic uh, behavior to stand. Uh, and I think those together, what you've done is for an hour, given us thoughtful commentary for our, our guests and we're honored to have the guests and we thank them. Um, the Institute of World Politics is a fine place for masters and, and uh, doctoral students. Uh, we um, focus on uh, training uh, lawyers, diplomats and spies as we like to say. And these are two of the many excellent professors we have at IWP. So consider uh, joining the student body or sending young men and women our way who can um, have an interest in those disciplines of statecraft. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to close out now, and we hope you'll tune in again. Go to our website, iwp.edu, for more information about our programs. Good evening.